0: Amen. Good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. We're going to be in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 this morning. So as you are turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with and be formed by. God calls us to fulfill his law as gracious witnesses through loving our neighbors by his grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Let me say that again. God calls us to fulfill his law as gracious witnesses through loving our neighbors by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, for the commandments you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we, we step into this, I, I want to make the argument that... I'm fairly convinced that this is either the most important text in the book of Romans for understanding the whole of Romans, or at least the second most important text for understanding the whole of Romans. And it kind of is one that you could almost pass by, right? Like it's, it's it's not a very lengthy text, but the weight that it calls to bear on those who are listening, which now includes us, is tremendous. And it's a weight that only Christ could bear and then help us to bear as we are called to live out what he is calling us to do here, right? And so the first question that I have for us is one that is going to, you, you know the answer, you know what you should say, but I want to encourage you to instead really think about it. Uh, maybe not right now, but sometime later today, but let it, let it just hit you, but who deserves your love? Who is it? that deserves your love? And we could ask it another way, who doesn't deserve your love? Now, everything hinges on what we mean by love, correct? Right, like that, that's gonna have an impact on what is it we're actually talking about within the context of this. But, but since we're talking about it within the context of Christian charity, let's keep it there, who is it that ultimately you could keep your love from as an act of Christian charity? You can't. You can't. Now, you may want to say to me, but wait, 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 hold on. What about 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells uh, tells us to turn the person who's engaged in this heinous sin out as if they were an unbeliever? Do remember that the Bible doesn't stop there. Paul circles back around later in 2 Corinthians and says, Hey, look, y'all took what I said pretty hard. And I understand that, and I had to say it strong, but here's what I want to make sure that you understand, that in turning that person out and treating them as an unbeliever, the goal is reconciliation, not condemnation. And so what you need to do by way of follow-up is make sure that that individual knows that they are still loved. It may mean you withhold certain aspects of fellowship to them, but you do not leave them without some measure of the evidence of Christ to them, right? Because how would you treat an unbeliever? Do you keep Christ from an unbeliever? Oh, I would hope not, right? And so when it says treat him as an unbeliever, that means you focus on making sure that what they're hearing from you is the gospel, not the burden of law but the burden of love. And so it is important that we recognize that within the context of what's being said here, that this is where the whole of the Christian life, I am going to argue, apart from Christ, stands or falls. If we fail to follow what's being said here, then we are failing to to evidence the image of God. We are failing to evidence the finished work of Christ. And we're failing to be a witness of any value in this world. Now, what we want to do is be careful because there's a couple of terms that we're going to have to define. And in fact, you're going to think, I think Cameron crammed three sermons into one. And you're right. That's exactly what I'm about to do. Uh, because, Because we need to understand what does Paul mean and ultimately what is the biblical technical definition of neighbor, Right. Uh, there, there's a place that we're going to go to and see the parable of the Good Samaritan where neighbor gets defined. And then we need to understand what's the biblical technical definition of love, which is critical to understanding what we're being asked to do here. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and make sure we understand that because we can't do what we're being asked to do if we don't understand the terms, Right? And so uh, that'll help us to understand what is it that Paul is asking of us here, which, by the way, he's just passing on the commandment that Christ gave, you understand? This isn't new. Paul's just taking it and bringing it forward and applying it to a particular context. Now remember, one of the reasons why this is the critical point is because he's walked us through already like several places where we are called to fulfill the will of God. And as we recognized last week, Uh, We recognize many weeks the will of God is to be reconciled to his people. Based on what? What does he gain from being reconciled to us? What's the benefit to him? What's the upside to the creator of the universe who knows the end from the beginning, who is eternal? What's the upside of being yoked to us for him? It's it is and in fact I would argue it's gr- greater than his glory. Can I can I say that? I teach you the there. I can say whatever I want. I'm just kidding. I think even greater to him than even his glory is his joy. There is some way in which he takes great joy in being because he would be glorified by creation, right? And you might argue he can take joy in creation, but there's a give and a take. There's a relational aspect to us uniquely to him that is different than creation in and of itself. And so there is something in that alchemy that he is, he is most glorified by that, which brings him the greatest joy, which is to be reconciled to his children, something we kind of can understand, right? Those of you who have children and grandchildren, there's just something beautiful and glorious about being in relationship to your children in a way that that, is, that you're at peace, right? There's a beauty and a gift to that, that just is not matched hardly anywhere else. And I, don't, I would argue it's probably unmatched in some ways. And so, so the, the Lord longs for us to be reconciled, and so that's why we are ambassadors of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. That is the whole purpose of the Christian life. It is why you are justified, it is why you are being sanctified, and it is ultimately the point of our glorification. And we can, we can make it about a lot of other things, but this is, I would argue, where it all stands or falls because notice what he says, you're fulfilling. What are you fulfilling when you love your neighbor as yourself? The whole of the law. What did Jesus say the whole of the law pointed to? Him. So in him saving us, if he is the whole of the law and our, our fulfilling of the whole of the law is to love our neighbors as ourself, this is the sumum bonum of the Christian life. The opportunity to love our neighbors. Now, that's easy to say, is it not? Super easy to say. It's super easy to be like, oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm totally going to try that. It's a whole other matter when the Lord begins to show you how he's now going to sanctify and form you further into the image of Christ in and through this love of neighbor, which, as it turns out, happens to be another sinful human being in need of Christ himself, to which you are called to love as he loves, which ain't easy, by the way, which is why I have continued to carry in by by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. If you try to love on any other foundation, you will, I will, we will fail. We just don't have the legs for it. We just don't have the stomach for it to keep coming back, right? So this is what, what Paul longs for the Roman Christians to be about. Remember, they're a divided people. The Jews thought... Hey, we're the chosen ones, we're better than you, we had the covenant, we got the law, we have the circumcision, we've got all of these things, you guys are the new kids on the block, stand back and watch. The Gentiles said, no, God has welcomed us in, he kicked y'all out for a season, we're the new kids on the block, it was obvious that y'all weren't good enough for him, so he had to go with the younger sibling, and there's some biblical precedent for this, that the younger, the older would serve the younger, and so, therefore, you're welcome, we're here. Right? And, and what does Paul step into that gap and say? This is a false distinction. He loved you all. Each of you served different purposes, but was all for the same thing. You were all called to love one another. You do know that the call to love neighbor is not a New Testament construct. It's a Levitical law, actually. It's in Leviticus, and it is, it's a command that's been part of the whole of redemptive history. It's never not been a thing. And so this is critical for us to understand. Like, So if you're going to try to submit to civil authorities that you disagree with, if you're going to try to not get tangled up in the things of the earth and stay on mission, this is where it will happen. This, Especially if we get that definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to recognize straight away because you already know it ain't easy to do what he's asking us to do. And then when we get decentered by what Jesus means by the really means by the parable of the good Samaritan, well, we're going to all realize how much we need the ongoing work of Christ to be able to live this out. So let's step back into the text for just a moment because it's connected to the previous passage. He says, owe no one anything. So what he's referring to is what he said in verse 7 last week, where he said, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Uh, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And that's in reference to the civil authorities. Now, when he says, owe no one anything, he's saying, make sure those accounts are square. Don't waste your time fighting against uh, the earthly powers or flesh and blood when we got bigger fish to fry. Keep that square so that the church can continue in the freedom that that the Lord allows in various circumstances and, and, and in different parts of history. Their circumstance was not an easy one, right? It was a tyrannical government that for their benefit believed in the freedom of religion, interestingly, right? So that's one of the things the Roman government was big on, freedom of religion so long as you don't cause any trouble. But the moment you start causing trouble, we will snuff you out, right? That was their policy. And so he was essentially saying, look, let's, while the day is, while we have this freedom, let's not go causing Rome to take it from us. We've got a bigger mission and a bigger God to follow than Caesar. And so he's saying, so take care of that. Because you've got something more important to focus your time, effort, energy, and resources upon, which is accept to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And later in the verse, he's going to say it not in the past tense, but in the ongoing sense. So the Greek here really is, this is a debt you can't pay. This is a debt that cannot be exhausted before Christ returns, that we have an ongoing Like At what point can I turn to Susan and say, listen, you're welcome. I've done all I can do. I've loved you as much as I can. And I think we're done here. Not in a bad way, but I've given you all I can give you, okay? I'm going to go live in a little trailer out in the back in the woods. We've got a little property. We, I can do that, right? So what point can I say that to her? At what point can you turn to one of your children and say, listen, <laughs> I've done all I can do. I've given you all I can, uh, and uh, don't, don't come here next Christmas. There will be no gift for you. Uh, love is complete. You're welcome. Go and be well, right? Who, who can you say that to? We can't, right? It's an ongoing, once we make that commitment, not just even the marital covenant, but even in friendship, even in joining and becoming a member of a church, we have to think through what does that mean and the gravity of what we're committing to. And we need to understand that it doesn't just resolve, right? That's the beauty of love, is that it continues to challenge and grow us and show us and evidence the beauty of God. Do you know what we're gonna spend an eternity doing? In part, appreciating the love of God, which as scripture tells us, what are the boundaries of the love of God? Somebody tell me. None. There are none. Not because there is no love, but because love in and of itself from the heart of God himself, it is boundless and it is endless and it is depthless and it is without shape because it just carries on. And so we have been granted this love in earthen vessels, mind you. With our feet of clay, with all of our frailty, the Lord has said, I'm going to entrust some measure of this talent to you. Now go and invest and spend it, because you can never spend it all. And so he says that we are to fulfill this law. And he goes on for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And just in case we were like hung up on, yeah, but there's some other things. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's go find some biblical technical definitions if you would flip to 1 Corinthians 13, for the second sermon. And we wanna think this through practically because I think we can read this, we've heard this at weddings and we, we give a cent to it, oh yeah, patient and kind, yeah, totally, 100%. Uh, but, but to really have to personalize it and, and I hope I can help you with something because this is a verse that I use often that I, that I really try to pray through very specifically I do it probably more particularly when I'm heading into circumstances that might be a little hairy. One of the things that Susan and I say to each other often as we go to a family event, <laughs> one of the more hairy places you can find oneself, uh, we'll, we'll look at each other and say, all right, let's not mess up 10 Christmases from now, okay? That's often the goal, but I think that's a bad goal. And it's not a bad bottom-rung goal. I think it's the bad ultimate goal because what we ought to want and long for is Lord, where might we see you at work? Where might we have the opportunity to display this kind of love for for the people that you have put us in proximity to? And where might we be loved this way because we know you are near? Right? That's some version of that. But listen to what Paul says uh, about love. And this is coming out of his discussion of what is the church and how the church has differing gifts and abilities, but yet they are one body. I gain nothing. Now, this is an important set of distinctions, especially coming out of that discussion on spiritual gifts, right? We, the church, have to admit that we praise competency over character. If you can exposit the mysteries and the knowledge of God in a profound way, I don't care how you treat your wife. Now, let me just say, I don't believe that. That was sarcasm. For those of you who are wondering, did I really mean that? No, I didn't. If we say, man, this guy is a prophet par excellence. He, he, he helps move us closer to the Lord. But I don't care how he treats his kids. I don't care if his kids love the Lord. I do. I don't care how he treats his neighbors. You know, sometimes prophets are gruff. They eat weird stuff and wear camel hair. You'd be irritable, too, if you wore camel hair all day with a brown belt and ate crickets or whatever it was. No, no, we need to recognize that this is where it stands or it falls. Competency is not the, the, the proof of the hand of God. No, for one to be loving, for one to display what's coming next is the better demarcator of who and whose we are. Now, how might you be able to pray this in a specific way uh, for a circumstance that you're going into? And again, I've, I've chosen to pick one where it could get hairy. There's some different personalities involved, right? A uh, family event usually includes differing opinions on lots of things, especially ours anyway, uh, and, and strong opinions, um, and, and just dynamics that can be interesting, right? Now, I'd be wise to pray this in almost every circumstance where I'm going to encounter people of some kind, which is kind of my job, but, but at least I'm smart enough sometimes to pray it under difficult circumstances. So, love is patient. Is there, is there a familial circumstance for which you need to be patient? Did somebody laugh? <laughs> <laughs> that ain't no joke. I'm just kidding. Right? Is there not? Is there not some circumstance? And you could argue every circumstance, but don't flatten it. Here's the problem: we take and sometimes make stuff so abstract that we end up not living it out. This you need to figure out a way to pray this in a very personal way. So, what are the things that make you impatient with that person? Right? And you can pray specifically, Lord, would you would you help me to steward? This moment that you, in your sovereignty, are granting, would you help me to steward it with patience? Because this irritates me. This, this, this—I'm so tired of hearing this. These promises that they're making and not going to keep. I'm so tired of the grandiose claims that they make and never come through. And it's not enough for you to say nothing. Because we could, we could say, "All right, I think I got it. I'll just be quiet. Right, that's patient. Right, close enough, ballpark, and kind." Can you just be quiet? No. No, you actually have to seek to encourage and edify those with whom you would be impatient. It's all tied together, by the way. This is kind of like the fruit of the Spirit, like not fruits of the Spirit. Those were just nine different examples or eight different examples of what love is uh, lived out. So that's what this is actually showing us. You kind of can't do one of them, impartiality, without all of them being in concert. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about sanctification, which is why it requires God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And this, if you are paying attention, is a description of Christ himself. There is no discussion about this as behavioral modification without Christ. We're just talking about the longing to look more like Jesus in in every sphere of influence. Let's carry on. Love does not envy or boast. How many of you have that family member that just like money just like grows in their pockets and they always are falling forward into something great? Or, or that, that family member who just is, their kids, they're like all going to seminary and they're only five and, and they've already finished college, right? Uh, or their kids are just better behaved than yours. And you can't help but wonder, you envy. How, why? Why then? Why do they get to have these kind of kids? Why, why? What did we do wrong? And suddenly you're starting to move far from the gospel, are you not? The moment that you say, that you make it all about what you did or didn't do as to whether or not another human being knows Jesus. Now, you have a responsibility, don't get me wrong, but your responsibility is not salvation. It's glorification. It's to glorify the Lord and teach them how to do that or teach them how to appreciate that, and then the Spirit has to go from there. But you know we all envy in differing circumstances. And then there's the other side. There's boast, right? So, so think about how these two kind of go together. You can't help but sometimes when you really envy that other person, you can't help but try to find a way to boast some, to let them know they're not the only person in the world that God loves, who's blessed, I can be blessed too. Think about the circumstances in which we boast uh, to, as an act of condemnation of those in our spheres of influence. And we need to pray, Lord, help me to not do either of these things. Help me not to envy the good that you do. Because if you envy, can you rejoice with those who rejoice? Nope. If you boast, can you weep with those who weep? No. This is important. And then it says, it's not arrogant or rude. Think about that. How often are we just rude? uh, Even in how we greet people. Because maybe the last time you saw them at some event, didn't go so well, and you, you're, you're kind of you're put off with them. And so you come into a family event as a Christian and choose to ignore them or give them the cold shoulder or answer with just one answer when they ask you, hey, how are you doing? Fine. That's rude, is it not? It is. And we would do well, to examine our hearts in this matter, would it, would it kill you not to be rude? Susan says that to me all the time. Would it kill you? I was like, I don't know, because if I try it once and I die, then I'm right, but I die. <laughs> you see, it's just science out here. Just doing science. And think about how this, this issue of arrogance, like the, again, this ties into envy and boasting. Who, who are we to first of all, demand that the event be about us in the first place. How many times do you go, and I'm just using family events because I just think it's low-hanging fruit, but you go to a family event, and it's all about you. If it doesn't do something to move you, if you don't find some grand meaning in the event, if you're not being entertained, if it's going to be hard on you, you would just as soon not go. That's arrogant. Would that we would recognize the sovereignty. Of now, let me pause here. I'm not talking about an abusive situation for which you should not endure such as that. We're talking about your garden variety Christmas with family or Thanksgiving. You know, it's the, it's the Christmas vacation version, if you will. But, but not, not something that you are being mistreated as an image bearer. No, that's a whole different matter and a different discussion. We're talking about the middle of the bell curve, not the ta- tail ends, okay? And so th- this is really important that we, we recognize that our, sometimes from the jump before we can ever get there, we have already established that there's no way for us to love because we've made it about us. What would it look like for you to, to go to an event and it not even be about you because you're redeemed in Christ? You've got the freedom to go and just be looking for where God is at work. Where some conversations might pop up with a family member that you don't know all that well, that you could edify and encourage or bear witness to the ongoing work of the Lord in reconciliation. This has been a great gift to, to me in the last few family gatherings of just the evidences of God's goodness, to sit on the porch with my surrogate brother and talk about the beauty of the Psalms and have him order Gordon Wenham's The Psalms Reclaimed and get excited and it not be weird, Right? Now, it helped that I'd read uh, one of the Lord of the Rings books, which he loves dearly, and I could talk conversantly about Tom Bombadil. But it also helped that uh, we've seen some reconciliation and God just be good. There was never really any major issue between he and I, but it was just that weird creep that sometimes can come into families where you just, you don't jee-haw. You know, you're not my dude. Uh, Some of the stuff you're talking about, I just ain't down with, right? But because it's not about me, I don't have to... I don't have to get something out of it proper and receive instead the good gifts that the Lord may be working. And oh, by the way, you could apply this all to church as well, could you not? And church events. I just didn't want to pick that because that just seemed too on the nose. I'll stay with family. And it goes on. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. How many of the problems that we have are purely because we're resentful? We're mad that God didn't give us something in particular, that things haven't gone our way according to our timing, right? And think about how that keeps us from being able to see what he is doing, what, what is happening in a given context. And it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Now, this is a big one. Uh, but, in, but instead, it rejoices with the truth. How often, when you've got that family member that you used to envy, but now <laughs> comes out their kid's got a drug problem. A kid who was so great and somehow is a little bit worse than yours, and you, you, you take a little bit of pleasure in that wrongdoing, or something happens to take them down a notch, or something is going on that you, you take a little pleasure in, but you shouldn't. You should rejoice at no wrongdoing. We also shouldn't celebrate our own wrongdoings, right? Uh, we also should be more in tune with and looking for where is the truth at work and displaying itself. And then to Capstone, he says, love bears all things. What's that cover? All Things. Now, again, to bear is an active. This is not, this is not something being foisted upon you. This is an active stance of saying, I'm going to bear with. And Susan could tell you, one of the things that I do uh, in, in our, our family gatherings is I will oftentimes locate myself where I know the margins are gonna show up. Not as something grand and holy, but because I don't think that I don't think people should ever smoke alone. I don't smoke, but, but I also think that there are people who are at times uncomfortable within the greater family gathering just because this family is loud. Shocking. It's not my family, it's hers, uh, but they are loud. You know what I mean? And sometimes it could just be a lot for certain folks, my daughter in particular, who battles some of the social anxiety that can come with that. And so, so my daughter knows she can always find me. And then I'm in a space not because I'm avoiding the rest of the family. I've had to make sure I also do a lap around the kitchen and whatnot and get in everybody's way. So they're like, would you just go back outside? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I go back outside. Uh, <laughs> so I'm intentional about trying to bear with some of the folks who are less comfortable in the family context. And I think that that's, and I've seen beautiful things happen in and through that. My, one, my Susan's niece's Husband Michael uh, is is a great guy, and he's he's come he's he's cuts grass and hunts and kills stuff and man a few words. But we he was kind of out with the smokers, and uh, the, the joke became because I said no one should ever smoke alone. And then it was it was like freezing on Christmas Day if you remember, and we're outside, you know. I'm with the <laughs> I'm not warm because of their smoking, uh, and and he's like no one should freeze alone. And so he came out there, and we had this long conversation about family. Something he didn't know about me and some stuff I didn't know about him. And when Michael left, he shocked me. And y'all know how I feel about this, right? He hugged me. <laughs> and it was genuine, and, and, and I saw it as gift. Because he felt like, hey, we've shared something. And Michael's a pretty good-sized dude, and so when he hugs you, you're not wiggling out quick, right? Like, you don't fight it, just let it happen. And so... Uh, so you've got you to be willing to bear all things. and Please hear me. This is not about me. I have more stories of the times I have failed to do this than the times I have done it. I just am trying to be slightly encouraging and showing you some ways you can do it. Uh, and then it goes on to say believes all things. Like just randomly believes whatever. Like we're talking conspiracy theories. Like the you know, two-hour YouTube stuff that Susan's mom would love for me to watch. Now, when it says, believes all things, believes all things as far as God is concerned and what he has said and what is possible. And that is important because you can't hope for all things if you don't, right? And we ought to be the most hopeful and creative people in any given circumstance. I will hammer that to the day I am laid in the ground. And then it endures all things, just in case you forgot about the bearing all things. Some things you just have to endure, right? And not, not with your holding your nose, but to endure with purpose, to endure with love, to endure in Christ. And so when Paul says you are to love your neighbor, this is what the word love means. Now, to neighbor, we're going to have to flip over to our third sermon in Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. And this is the parable of. Uh, the Good Samaritan. And now with all parables, what you've got to pay attention to is the straightest line through is not the line. There's something always in a parable that is decentering, Something always that's kind of throwing off the circumstance. So this is really important. We'll pay attention and watch for it. Because he's going to tell us who our neighbor is, but who, mainly by telling us who we ought to be. He goes, so, as you would expect, and behold a lawyer. Stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He being Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he he got the letter of the law, did he not? He nailed it. Now Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So what Jesus doesn't tell him is what it's going to take to be able to do it, does he? Because what's it going to take for him to be able to do it and live? He's got to, he's got to, he's got to receive Christ as Savior. He's going to have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to need the fullness of the means of grace for this to make any sort of coherent sense to him and be even remotely possible. And notice what the lawyer does, as all the inner lawyers in us would do and does do. Every time you hear a sermon, I think the inner lawyer in you and in me does what he does next. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So what's he doing here? What's the lawyer missing? Well, it's not about who his neighbor is, it's who you are to become first, but he's concerned with, all right, so who's my neighbor? So I can do that. I can just, just keep it. I can boil it down, check it off. Know I've done it and I am justified. And how often is that what we do with God's word? When you heard last week that you were submit- to submit to the civil authorities, how many of you were like, all right, how am I going to justify myself in this? How, what's, the, what's the lowest letter of the law? What's the least common denominator? How, how, what's the lowest bar to get in this thing? Instead of asking, who, am I, who should I become in order to obey what God has said? So Jesus replied to him, and this is great, like Jesus tells them this story. Instead of just straight answering his question, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, did the guy do anything wrong? Is the traveler wrong in any way, shape or form? But you can tell. No, he's not. He was just going about his way. Now, by chance, interesting choice of words by Jesus, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Let me ask you, is it not interesting the two people that he picked, the priest and the Levite? Now, what law did they break? None. They thought he was dead. If you are a priest or a Levite, you can't touch something that's dead. That's Levitical law. You can't get involved in these kind of things because it will make you unclean. So while we look at it and go, yeah, just like church people, just leaving folks for dead, they thought they were doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. Now, this is why this story is so decentering. The setup, the fix is already in, right? Because this guy has asked, what, what is it, what's the minimum I'm supposed to do? And Jesus is saying, that is a bad question. And so the two religious folks kept the law based on what they knew, based on what they could see. And they went on about their business. But then comes a very interesting character, which is going to matter because of the racial implications. But a Samaritan, now what's a Samaritan? A Samaritan was kind of the worst of the worst. If you think about it, they're mixed breed. They're not all one thing or another, right? They they don't don't often know what to check on the EEOC forms, right? They're, They're not of one people or another, so who claims them? Who was supposed to claim a Samaritan? Well, if you know anything about history, neither side wanted anything to do with them. And so what they ended up doing was making up their own religion. They kind of fused a bunch of stuff together, which is part of that whole discussion Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And so this mixed half-breed, good-for-nothing Samaritan, and good-for-nothing, by the way, is not my term of this person, it would have been what they thought. So consider the lawyer's got to be going... Huh. And he says uh, that the good Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he, being the person who'd been beaten and looked dead, was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Now, here's, here's what's important. How, how rich do you think Samaritans were given their socioeconomic status and social status? By and large, they were not. This is very akin to the widow's might, in some sense, that this Samaritan, and consider, if he had just bound him up and took him to the inn, would, would we not be impressed enough with what he had done? And yet he said, his debt is my debt. And he goes on to say, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Interesting language. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, you gotta be thinking for the lawyer, and as, as many people had realized with Jesus in his questioning, it was never the obvious thing, not in the obvious way that it seemed. So you got to be thinking, the lawyer at this point is pretty nervous, because what's the, what are the stakes? What was actually the, the balance of the question he was asking? How should I have eternal life? You get this wrong, and what happens? In his mind, you're gone, Right? So the stakes are incredibly high, and he recognizes, uh-oh, uh oh, huh, the one who showed him mercy, which is not a word that's actually used in the category, but, and Jesus looks at him and says, You go, and you do likewise. What did he just tell him to go and do? Because this is what we miss. He tells him essentially to be a Samaritan. You go, and you be the lowest of the low. You be the one that, that everybody else would pass by no matter what. You be the one who, who has to expend uh, for the debt of another because of what I have done for you. And when I come back, your debt's covered. And so he's actually telling him not what the neighbor ought to be. Because how many, so if, if, if the lawyer was a purist, he would go, All right. Anytime I see somebody beaten naked on the side of the road, I'll just do this and I'm good, right? And I'll get out of it, but I won't travel the roads that robbers travel. (laughs) Easy enough. I'll go to heaven. Really? No. He'll go to heaven only if he realizes that he is the least of these. Only if he realizes that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And that distinction actually doesn't matter if everyone is in Christ. Because Jesus is actually calling him to himself because this isn't something any of us could ever do on a regular basis without Christ in us. So when Paul says to love your neighbor as you love yourself, we shouldn't get tangled up in trying to figure out who our neighbor is. We should get tangled up in trying to figure out who we are. We should ask the question, am I first and foremost in you, Christ? I'm not asking you to to doubt your salvation, but what I am telling you to do is work out your faith with fear and trembling. Just as Paul says in Colossians, when he is in chapter 3, helping them to look to the good things that are at the right hand of the Father and not the things of the earth, he says, if you are resurrected with Jesus, that's a good thing for us to re-up every once in a while in our own minds and go, no, I am resurrected in Christ. I am uh, new in Christ, the one who was treated worse than a robber, the one who was less than a Samaritan as far as this world was concerned. I am resurrected and can do what Jesus is now asking me to do, which is to love my neighbor. Who happens to be whoever is in your spheres of influence because of God's providence and sovereignty? And so this is something you can begin to pray about specifically for those in your spheres of influence, whether that's family, right? Each of us who have multiple children, you've got differing relationships with different children, different seasons in those relationships in which it will require you to think through how to love them. Patience won't look the same when they're nine as when they're 27. Yes, it goes on. Still a need, right? Kindness is still part of it. And so, and so we, need to, we need to have this be the thing that is formative of us instead of always looking for or perpetually looking for what's the shortest way for me to be, maintain my Christianity. Instead of what is the banquet, Lord, that you've laid before me that transforms every circumstance that I am now in, even the circumstances I don't want to go into. Yeah, I'm going to say this has been an interesting thing uh, that I've been wrestling with, in particular, especially as a number of my friends are leaving ministry. As I've, I've told you it's probably five in the last three weeks. Um, and one of the things that one of them said was he said, man, I'm, just, I'm tired of being treated like furniture. I'm tired of being that thing that's in people's lives that as long as it's functional, and as long as they like it, and as long as it's good and it serves their purpose, I'm good. But the moment that they don't want my function anymore. It's out with the old furniture. Let's bring in some new. And oftentimes they don't tell you. You just think they're taking you on a trip. Out to eat, maybe. No, you're heading to the dump. You're gone. And that occurs in a lot of different ways. Now, I'm not not up here whining because I've thought a lot about it because I don't know of many other jobs that has that weird fusion of where do I end as pastor and begin as friend? Where do I end as pastor and begin as husband? There's no relationship on which someone knowing I'm a pastor doesn't influence how they view what I say, what I eat, what I drink, what I watch, what I read, uh, everything. It's just just not true for most professions, right? You're not out to eat. Dave is a bank guy, and somebody comes up like, Making some bad decisions there, Dave. Went right side of the menu. Seems like you'd be trying to save more money. You're a terrible banker. They don't do that. Now, you can start now that you are armed and weaponized. (laughs) But you shouldn't because of 1 Corinthians 13. Seriously, think about it. Like, there's not, and we talk about a lot at the office. And you may say, man, you're going to run these guys off and scare them off. No, I'm trying to keep them so they'll be healthy for a long time in ministry. So, so it is a very interesting thing for me to kind of have to wrestle through this and think about it in reference to a job that has no boundaries, essentially, and everything's personal. Everything. There's no getting around it. Now, how personal I take it is very important, is it not? Because, because of what Christ is and through me, I get to see things and witness things that are just glorious. We talked about this in the staff meeting because there's sometimes this argument of like, man, if I wasn't on staff at the church, maybe I wouldn't think so poorly of Christ's bride. Yeah, but you also wouldn't get to see the wonderful, glorious stuff that we get to see that, we, that the Lord invites us into. We can't let the devil blind us. We, get to, we are welcomed into something not because we're better than you. We are servants. We came to be servants as Christ who, is, who came to be the servant of all. We are most called to display this to you. And that is to be a gift, not a burden. Not the burden that destroys, but instead that which edifies and encourages and builds up. It'll be hard some days because each of you is different. I don't know if you knew that or not. And each of you has different things going on and in different seasons. And what a gift it would be to us just as a church, if this is what defined us. Think about that. Can you name a neighbor that you, you go, "Man, I don't want them to believe 1 Corinthians 13 at all toward me." I would rather they be impatient and rude and arrogant and envious, right? and throw stuff in my yard and be jerks. No, we would love it if everybody looked like this. Well. There's a room full of about 200 or so of y'all that is called to it. And think about what the world desperately needs now. What does the world so desperately long for? as she convulses and thinks she is ending because of any number of things I don't know if you know, they've shot down like two unidentified flying objects, also known as a UFO, for those from the '70s. And we don't know what it is. I don't know, it's getting weirder by the day, it seems. And so, we need to look more like Jesus. And if we're not going to do it, who is? Who has this charter? Who has this foundation? Who has this ability apart from those who are in Christ? It is us. And so, listen to what Adolf Schlatter says about this. Love is distinct from all legal obligations because it has no boundaries. All other debts can be paid off. Every legal obligation can be fulfilled for each one requires only limited effort. Love, on the other hand, does not desire the avoidance of individual evils nor the production of particular goods. It is the will that desires community and it enters us into the community with everything we are. Hence, love cannot end. It lasts as long as life does. Hence, it, is also, it also accomplishes everything the law requires for the community cannot endure if the other's right is refused. From fulfilling, prohibits you individually from fulfilling God's law as a gracious witness through loving your various neighbors. This is important for us to take stock of and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There are things that in various circumstances make it harder for us to love other people. and You can only change you, right? You can't go to them and say, hey, Cameron preached this this sermon about love and I'd really love to accomplish it, but you're going to need to change in order for me to be able to do it. Otherwise, I got to tell him about you. No. So what is it that keeps you? Think of the various circumstances you're in. What are the challenges? What can you specifically be praying for? That the Holy Spirit would transform and change in you, whether it's your marriage, whether it's in parenting, whether it's in in your family at large, whether it's in your job, whether it's the person who just built a house that has now ruined the view of your lake that you moved into five years ago. I don't, I'm nothing specific, but you know. So what, and even better, what encourages you to fulfill God's law as gracious witness through loving your various neighbors? I will tell you some of the greatest encouragement that I have had is praying 1 Corinthians 13, going into various circumstances and seeing the Lord's hand at work. We are always moved to greater faithfulness by witnessing the greater faithfulness of God. These are the kinds of prayers he longs to answer because we are praying as those who are offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Lord, in this circumstance, I'm not praying that you you kill my brother-in-law. I'm asking you to use me as an instrumentality of your love to speak to him. And so often I've seen the Lord do these things because it's about who we're becoming, not about what we require from them. And so Romans 13, 8 through 10 teaches us that God calls us to fulfill his law as gracious witnesses through loving our neighbors by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would we as a church pray in this way in an ongoing fashion? Would that we would wrestle with it, and and I would love for you, if you're struggling with something in particular, reach out to one of your elders or one of your deacons or one of us on staff. Let's pray with you in this. We're not going to condemn you. All of us could tell you we're some of the most hateful people we know apart from Jesus. Like We're we're never going to judge you for struggling. Right, We want to we see this change in us because what we know is that the more we look like Jesus, the greater our joy, the greater God's joy, and the greater the gift to the world. And so would you join me in this? And let's hold each other accountable to it. Right, let us, Let's hold each other accountable in the sense that we want to build each other up, not tear each other down. So let us become the loving community that God has saved us to be. You weren't justified so that you could sit on a shelf somewhere and not participate in the things of the kingdom, you were justified to love. You are being sanctified to love. You will be glorified through love. Christ and God's foremost. So let's pray to that end. Father, would you give us opportunities to experience this truth today, even, and certainly throughout this week, Would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear where you are at work in seeking to form us more into the image of Christ so that we specifically would be greater ambassadors of reconciliation? Not for our glory, but yours. Not just for our joy, but yours. Not just for your and our joy, but that for the life of the world. Would you help us to remember why we are here and where we should expend our time and effort and energy? No greater cause could we lay down the aspects of our life for than to love another. Those are your words, Lord. That was Christ's example to us. So Lord, help us. Help us to remember often the words of 1 Corinthians 13. Would you help us to be the kind of people that love others in the way that you have loved us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.